Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. This weekend, America celebrated the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., who wasn't just a political and spiritual leader, activist, and symbol, but especially for black America, a sort of prophet whose counsel was offered far beyond the scope of civil rights. As writer Michael Denzel Smith observes, some of King's wisdom has not aged well. Brooks spoke with Smith last spring after the 50th anniversary of MLK's assassination in Tennessee. He died just days after joining sanitation workers in Memphis who were demanding living wages. This was a year after King's call for an end to the Vietnam War, four years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and three years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Ten years earlier, when he was still in his 20s, Martin Luther King Jr. was a prominent preacher, an activist, a family man, and also an advice columnist for Ebony Magazine. Writer Michael Denzel Smith, exploring the legacy of King as a role model of black masculinity for Atlantic Magazine, found that readers asked the civil rights leader for advice about everything from race relations to marriage problems, and that the exchanges revealed as much about King as his readers. There are people writing into Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. asking for typical advice column stuff about their relationships. They're like messages preserved in amber from the 50s. I'm going to read one of these letters. My husband is having an affair with a woman in our housing project. He promised to stop, but he's still seeing her. We have children, and I don't believe in divorce, but I cannot and will not share him. What must I do? And part of King's advice reads... Since the other person is so near, you might study her and see what she does for your husband that you might not be doing. Do you spend too much time with the children in the house and not pay attention to him? Are you careful with your grooming? Do you nag? Now, let me correct myself. This isn't preserved in amber from the 50s. This is preserved in amber from the 1890s. (laughs) To be as fair as possible to Dr. King. There are a couple men who do write into him asking for relationship advice, and his first reaction is to advise self-analysis. The problem I see here, though, is he gives lots of advice that is drawing on these sexist ideas about who women should be and what housewives should be and ignoring any ideas around gendered labor that happen to exist. He's asking, do you spend too much time with the children? Where are the children supposed to go? (laughs) Dr. King doesn't seem to think about this, right? With, as you note, some exceptions. For instance, birth control. This is true. Someone wrote in asking him whether or not he considered birth control sinful. And King says that he does not consider it sinful and that women should not be just breeding machines. And so he does have some understanding of women as people who can make their own choices and make their own decisions. But the advice that he gives to a woman who says that her husband's a terror, he's just like, well, have you asked yourself about yourself lately? (laughs) What have you done to produce this behavior in him? That he doesn't extend that thoughtfulness about birth control and about women's rights and about women's autonomy to this relationship advice seems maybe as like writing himself his own past, right? Knowing what we know about King and his own philandering to say, it is not my own fault. So why did you begin your column 
with the advertisement from Jet and the column from Ebony. He had been on the national scene for all of two years at this point. And Ebony has called him in as a 28, 29-year-old preacher to help you with happier living. We have no reason to believe that Dr. King can help anyone with happier living. He reveals here that maybe he wasn't exactly prepared for it. But there is this idea of him as someone of high moral character. 60 years later, it's still the same. 60 years later, it is exactly the same. And the image of King as a moral authority has been wielded against Black youth in all subsequent generations since his assassination. You call it a shaming tool. Yes. I often describe the civil rights generation of the 50s and 60s as analogous to the immediate post-World War II period, the greatest generation, the 50s and 60s are the greatest black generation, Mm -hmm. right? We look to them as the perfection of what black America could be. And Dr. King stands above them all. We want to say that if you are not living up to the example of King, then he must have died in vain. Mm -hmm. And so all social ills that are a product of institutional failures and oppression in Black America get translated into moral failures, character flaws. And here are some of the problems with this formulation, as you describe. One is that part of why King was able to connect beyond the black community into the white community is because he adopted white cultural stuff. There are cultural mores that would define one as respectable. For men, you dress in a suit. You have a level of education. You come from or have achieved a middle-class status. You have a respectable profession. And you sound the part. King obviously had that very preacherly Southern drawl and could draw upon that when necessary. But also he was able to speak in ways that could make people forget he was Black. He represents the right kind of Black manhood, the one that would open up the White House doors. What that then gets read as is it is the product solely of King's respectable presentation that we are able to enjoy the fruits of the civil rights movement. Now, that's certainly part of it. The leaders of that movement were some of the more, quote-unquote, respectable members of Black communities, right? I mean, this is where the dichotomy gets set up between King and Malcolm X, right? Like, the Nation of Islam Mm -hmm. very proudly drew their membership from those who had been in prison, those who were on the streets, those who were hustlers, those who were involved in prostitution, sex work. If you look at them, they look very similar (laughs) in their presentation, One had a bow tie, one had a straight tie. Very, very similar, but... Different backgrounds. Malcolm X does not have a high school degree, did not go to college. He went to prison for seven years. And so many members of the Nation of Islam are drawn out of those very prisons and ghettos that would have otherwise been discarded as members of society that are disposable. There is also a difference in who what we would call like the mainstream civil rights movement who is involved in that. These are church-going folks the black middle class, for the most part. 
Part of what makes it so outrageous that people would be treated this way is because they were the right kind of right. people. In your article, you mentioned a 2006 episode of The Boondocks produced by a black illustrator yeah. in which Dr. King wakes up from a coma four mm -hmm. decades after a failed assassination attempt. And what he finds are black people, you say, generally being uncouth in a way that King, cartoon or real, would disapprove of. What is imagined that he would disapprove mm -hmm. of, right? Like, the ultimate King moment of this episode is him standing in front of a sea of black people who are partying in his honor. They're blasting music, they're dancing, they're drinking, they're having fun. Some people are getting in fights and all of this. And now... Aaron Magruder's vision of King uh, comes to address them and says, Will you, will you, will you please shut the hell up? He just said what I think he said. Is this it? This is what I got all those ass whoopings for? I had a dream once. It was a dream that little black boys and little black girls would drink from the river of prosperity, freed from the thirst of oppression. But lo and behold, some four decades later, what have I found but a bunch of trifling, shiftless, good-for-nothing Here's an imagined king who we know as a political actor who spoke forcefully around the ideas of white supremacy, of, of militarism, of capitalism. We know this king. What Aaron Magruder imagines him coming back to say to Black people is that you have failed because of this deviant behavior that you're participating in. And you wrote that what happens is that the holy status mm -hmm. that he has in Black and white culture presents an obstacle to the examination of systems. It isn't his choice of suit that made the impression, but his political savvy, his tactics. Yeah, you don't win the Voting Rights Act just because you put on a suit. You do it because you coordinate many different actions over a course of years, facing the violence and using the media to shame America into producing some semblance of justice in the form of legal action. That's not solely because King was a religious man who believed in a divine order and was married and had children. Those are accomplishments of a man, but those are not political tactics. They helped, but you have to ask to what extent. Those civil rights and, and voting acts of the time period have been easily chipped away at. Mm. This is not to knock how monumental those victories are, but... If all that you're fighting on is the principles of respectability, you can fight for the right to vote because respectable people should have the right to vote. But does that change the way we view felon voting rights? What about these challenges to Black masculinity today? If we're just talking about a style that was a style in the 60s, it kind of reminds me of the Hasidic people in Brooklyn who walk around in clothes from the 19th century. Is that what's happening here? Well, or are there more specific challenges than just clothing? It's not just clothing, but the clothing is representative of something. 
King is a very specific mode of operating as a black man that we've come to believe as the most successful version of what a black man could be. And what kind of masculinity does King represent? Not just the respectable suit and tie, preacher, religious, all of that, but he is a cisgender hetero man, right? Right. And so you're sending a message to anyone that is not that, that you are a failure of black manhood. We can talk about King being a father, but also he spent a lot of time away from his family and his Mm -hmm. children because he was committed to the struggle. There are just so many disconnects between who King actually was and then the idealized version of him that are used to then prescribe a certain sense of black masculinity that all the rest of of us are supposed to live up to. And I can't think of an analogous person in yeah, the white no community. No like, if you're not George Washington, you are a failure, right? <laughs> <laughs> Only King is used in such a way to chastise black youth. There have been real political consequences. You can go back into the 1980s and 1990s Credit where credit is due, civil rights leaders of that period were calling for things other than policing and and incarceration. Mm -hmm. But they also used the rhetoric of failing to live up to King's dream to chastise black youth who were involved in violent crimes and in the drug trade and then turned around and used that same rhetoric of failure to live up to King's dream in imposing the draconian laws that turn into mass incarceration. The same people? Same people. Eric Holder, as attorney general of Washington, D.C. at the time, he delivers an MLK Day speech where he's talking about black-on-black violence, the failure of our people to live up to that example. And where kids who have not yet reached their teenage years already have sworn allegiance to a life of violence and a life of crime. I am dissatisfied that in Washington today, more than 2,500 young people are active gang members. So yes, like Dr. King, and like many of you, I am dissatisfied. He has the ability to then enforce laws that stop black motorists in the pursuit of the drug trade Mm -hmm. and illegal weapons. He's turned the police and the state on black folks in the name of King. Just before King's assassination in 1968, you note he participated in a sanitation Mm -hmm. workers' strike in Memphis. And part of what set off the strike was two sanitation workers getting mashed up in a trash compactor. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed so inhuman, like they didn't care. The striking workers held up a sign saying, I am a man. I am a man and we was going to demand to have the same dignity and the same courtesy any other citizen of Memphis has. We are saying that we are determined to be men. We are saying that we are God's children. These signs would mean something different in 2018. Yeah. So when we're looking at it now through this lens, we're looking at uh, people who think being a man is tied to their economic futures because they've been taught that a man is the head of household and that 
part of the rights that are being denied to them are not just the rights of being a worker who makes a living wage, but the rights of a man to make a fair wage and provide for his family. So when we're talking about examining these moments and trying to tease out what's useful and what's not, we have to divorce the very real rights that they were fighting for from the way in which they understood those rights and that being so closely tied to their rights as men. And this is drawn from a lot of King's writing as well. He couched these rights very much in a masculine framework that Black folks were, and poor folks were being denied the dignity of manhood. The Black man has been denied, and the Black man has been subject to, and the Black man this. And the Black man has seen his woman degraded. And, you know, yeah. It's just this idea that the worst aspects of what racism does is deny men the right to be men. There are a number of different things to just, like, unpack there. Racism, one— Affects black women as well, right? (laughs) Uh, But then also, what does being a man mean? What are the rights that you think are being denied to you? And are what you perceive as rights not oppressive to someone else? So, if the image of King has been misused, that we've deflected our focus not just from the systems that are responsible for endemic racism, but even from his own strategies and tactics that enabled him through relentless effort to make some change in the society, and that it's oppressive to young people today. Mm -hmm. What do you propose? I am okay with taking a vacation from King. I mean, across the board, everyone... Every now and then we, like, have a discourse around King and what King really meant and who King really was and the radical King and we need to rescue his image. But I think that he's too far gone at this point. It can be too overbearing and oppressive and not productive to continue to labor over arguing King's meaning. I think we can take a break from King. And you said across the board. So the white community should really uh, give King a break as well. You're not saying we should stop recognizing him once a year on the holiday, are you? (laughs) Maybe for a little while. (laughs) What? Maybe for a little while. Maybe Um, we need to let go completely for a little while. I don't think that it's productive. The holiday has been turned into this day of service. It's like, go to a homeless shelter and feed people. That's not the same thing as transforming a system so that there are no homeless people and there are no people that can't afford food. I'm saying maybe we do just need to let go of him for a time to discuss the future of our politics without drawing upon him to inform it. How long? 15, 20 years. How about masculinity? You think we should put that aside, too? We should get rid of that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Michael Denzel Smith is the author of Invisible Man, Got the Whole World Watching, A Young Black Man's Education. 